You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 33, The Boston Massacre. Despite ongoing street riots in various colonies during 1768 and 69, no one had been killed as a result. In 1770, though, that would change. By the end of 1769, merchants began to waver in their resolve of the non-importation agreements. These were the agreements to protest the Townsend Acts that were passed back in 1767, which had been in place for about two years now. The agreements were hurting merchants in Britain, but they were also hurting the colonials. Some merchants had always cheated, and some loyalists had refused to participate in the first place. As a result, the cheats and the loyalists were benefiting at the expense of patriot merchants who had upheld the agreements. Eventually, more and more merchants would have to give up their resolve and resume trade. For the radicals, the only answer was to coerce the merchants into continuing the agreements. Many of these agreements were due to expire at the end of 1769. Most merchants opposed an extension, and Samuel Adams and the other radicals used public shaming and threats of mob action to compel most of the merchants to remain on board. Eight prominent Boston merchants, however, refused to sign any extension. The eight holdouts found themselves named as traitors in a broadside published all over town. One tactic the Sons of Liberty used was to post signs in front of the stores that had refused in order to keep customers away. On February 22, 1770, a group of boys posted a sign in front of one of the holdouts' stores. Another man, Ebenezer Richardson, attempted to run over the sign with a horse and carriage that he had borrowed. Now, Richardson already had a pretty bad reputation around town. He had been a customs informer and was now working for the customs board. Many thought that he had been the informant on Daniel Malcolm that I discussed back in episode 25. After running over the sign, Richardson immediately found himself a target as the boys pelted him with rocks and chased him into his house. They continued to throw rocks, smashing his windows, and hitting people inside. The size of the mob increased as men joined the mob, threatening to kill Richardson. Now Richardson showed his face several times, threatening the growing mob, but that only seemed to enrage the mob even more. At some point, Richardson decided that it was a good idea to take his musket and fire a blast full of birdshot into the assembled crowd in front of his home. He shot and wounded two young boys. One of them, Christopher Sider, sometimes reported as Snyder, a boy around 11 or 12 years old, died from his wounds later that evening. Some historians argue that Sider should be considered the first casualty of the American Revolution. After this shot, the crowd stormed his house and captured everyone inside. Amazingly, they did not kill Richardson. Some tried to lynch him, 
but mob leaders convinced them otherwise, and instead they took him to the sheriff's office where he was charged with murder. Several months later, a Boston court convicted him and sentenced him to death. Richardson languished in jail for a year, as London considered a royal pardon. There really was not a lot of doubt that he would get one, but the bureaucratic delays and the slow pace of transatlantic communications stretched out the proceedings. Hutchinson announced the pardon, which eventually arrived, only after freeing Richardson and giving him a chance to get out of town before the mob could come after him. Richardson at first fled to Philadelphia, where he continued to work for the Customs Board. Soon, though, he appears to have left the colonies altogether. The death of a child, of course, only made the situation worse. Christopher Sider's funeral on February 26 drew thousands of mourners. It soon turned into a rally where Samuel Adams and others spoke to the crowds about British tyranny and the occupation by the British regulars. Now this may be a good time to address the question, what the heck were the soldiers doing? Weren't they supposed to be in Boston to maintain law and order? Why were mobs of thousands roaming the streets without any military opposition? Although the soldiers were in Boston, they did not do law enforcement unless the governor requested their help. Much like his predecessor, Governor Hutchinson feared the consequences of calling on the army to do anything. Even as Hutchinson's own two sons, who were tea importers, suffered ruthless harassment throughout 1769, he knew that calling in the soldiers would only enrage the people and probably lead to a mob trashing his house again, or perhaps even worse. The soldiers did maintain a guard at the Customs House, and as we saw at the George Gaylor tar and feathering incident a couple of weeks ago, the soldiers did not get involved in violence even when it happened right in front of them. The soldiers had a few other stations around town, including a checkpoint at Boston Neck. At the time, recall, the Neck was the only land that allowed people to pass in and out of Boston to the rest of the colony. The Boston we know today looks very different as engineering projects filled in much of the water and swamp land that surrounded Boston during the colonial era. The townspeople did their best to make the soldiers feel unwelcome, but typically limited their attacks to name-calling or other minor incidences. There are a few reports of fights between off-duty soldiers and locals. Newspapers exploited just about every minor incident they could find. For example, on July 19, 1769, a soldier named John Riley was being taunted by a local butcher. Riley knocked down the man. The butcher complained to the commanding officer, who said that he was glad Riley had taught him a lesson. The butcher then had Riley arrested, after which he was convicted of assault and fined. Riley then refused to pay the fine and attacked the constable who tried to arrest him. Bostonians resented the British occupation for a whole range of reasons I already discussed and these included having to pay for the soldiers' living costs and their use in enforcing the hated customs laws. But beyond those reasons, there were the inevitable disputes related to almost any military occupation anywhere. Within weeks of arriving in Boston, dozens of soldiers deserted their posts and left to start a new life in the colonies. As a result, a big part of military duties involved posting guards to keep deserters from leaving Boston and sending search parties into the countryside looking for said deserters. Of course, Bostonians did not like being stopped at military checkpoints all the time. 
After dark, drunken Bostonians at times assaulted guards at checkpoints. Similarly, many civilians filed complaints over overzealous guards who threatened or assaulted them. Boston also had its own civilian night watch. Night watchmen stopped anyone on the streets after dark. British officers and soldiers took offense at being stopped by civilians to answer their questions. Military protests that their people were above the law and did not have to answer to civilian law enforcement remained a continuing source of tension at night. Both night watchmen and soldiers were attacked and beaten on multiple occasions. Now, soldiers tend to be young single men who get into trouble with drinking and womanizing. Drunk soldiers frequently got into brawls with civilians in taverns. Soldiers would also hit on local women or just made lewd comments at them. This also led to fights as locals pounced to defend the honor of their women. There is one account of drunk officers actually encouraging slaves to rise up against their masters, telling the slaves that the soldiers were there to bring them freedom if they would only fight for it. Encouraging a slaver insurrection was, of course, a serious crime. This incident got a fair amount of attention at the time. It's not so much remembered now as later generations wanted to forget about Massachusetts' history of slavery. There were also accounts of soldiers committing petty crimes, burglarizing homes, stealing property at checkpoints, and other minor matters. Newspapers even reported an attempted rape, although this does not seem to be true. Even when soldiers were doing their duty properly, they still managed to annoy the locals. Many complained about interruption of church services on Sunday as soldiers shouted out orders on the streets outside. At the same time, civilians regularly picked fights with the soldiers, levied numerous complaints about exaggerated or even clearly invented wrongdoing. Soldiers on or off duty were regularly taunted. Children would throw rocks or snowballs at soldiers and then run away. Colonel Dalrymple, commander of British troops in Boston, put it this way, quote, I don't suppose my men are without fault, but 20 of them have been knocked down in the streets and got up and scratched their heads and run to their barracks, and no more has been heard of it. Whereas if one of the inhabitants meets with no more than a kick for an insult to a soldier, the town is immediately in an alarm, and not one word the soldier says in his justification can gain any credence. End quote. So both sides developed a bunker mentality. Complaints against the soldiers often went ignored or received extremely minor punishment. Similarly, legal actions in local courts by soldiers against civilians who wronged them regularly found their cases dismissed or summary findings for the defendant. Both sides came to realize that legal remedies were impossible. Only street justice would provide satisfaction for wrongs. Workmen also had yet another reason to dislike the soldiers. Many of the poorly paid soldiers took odd jobs while off duty. They were willing to work for lower rates, thus reducing wages for all laborers. So the competition for jobs increased rivalries and friction between soldiers and civilians. Now, the same week as Christopher Sider's funeral on February 22nd, Boston newspapers reported accounts of the Battle of Golden Hill in New York. This only served to increase tensions on both sides. Everyone remained on edge, looking for a fight. On March 2nd, Private John Walker, British regular, walked down the street past John Gray's rope walk, a rope-making enterprise. 
a rope maker named William Green called out to Walker, asking if he wanted to work. Walker responded yes, to which Green retorted, then go and clean my shithouse. The exact wording of the retort is a matter of dispute, but it clearly angered Walker. Exactly what happened next is also a matter of dispute. Walker claims that the workman then jumped him and beat him up unprovoked. Green claims that Walker came over and struck him, resulting in the fight that left Walker badly beaten. He also claimed that Walker dropped a sword during the fight, which he kept. A short time later, Walker returned with 30 or 40 soldiers from his regiment and called out Green and his fellow rope makers. Both sides were armed with clubs and sticks, but a massive street brawl ensued. The soldiers quickly became outnumbered as more local workers joined the brawl. The soldiers eventually retreated, and several of them had to be hospitalized for their wounds. Fighting continued for the next two days, with both soldiers and civilian workers attacking each other on site. Fighting finally seems to have subsided on Sunday, March 4th but tension and ill-will between the two groups remained at an all-time high. Now, Monday, March 5, 1770, started out with this tense foreboding. Most of the day passed with little violence. However, large numbers of Bostonians roamed the streets. Rumors swirled that British soldiers might attempt to burn down some buildings that evening. Both sides expected another street brawl. Gangs of armed civilians were alert and ready for action, just in case the soldiers decided to make more trouble. Even after sundown, the frozen streets remained alive with activity. Boston did not yet have lighting for its streets, so groups of soldiers and civilians had to carry a candle or make their way through the darkness. Around 8 p.m., Captain John Goldfinch walked down King Street near the Customs House. A young wigsmaker's apprentice named Edward Garrick commented loudly to his friends that the officer was a deadbeat who had not paid his master for a hair treatment. His exact words, like much of the evening's events, are a matter of dispute. The Captain Goldfish had the good sense to ignore the comment and walk away. Private Hugh White, a British soldier on sentry duty in front of the customs house, overheard the comments and decided not to ignore it. He confronted the boy and said something about the officer being an honorable gentleman who paid his debts. Garrick then made some insulting comment directly at White. We don't know exactly what he said, but some accounts say it was something like, there are no gentlemen in your regiment. White approached Garrick and said, let me see your face. Garrick stood up to him and said, I am not ashamed to show my face. White then hit Garrick on the ear with the butt of his rifle, knocking him to the ground. The boys' screams quickly caused a group of mostly boys and young men in the area to confront the lone sentry. Within minutes, White found at least a dozen apprentices, mostly teenagers, surrounding his post, calling him names and daring him to come fight them. Garrick's cries and the boys' shouts only caused the crowd to grow more quickly. Those roaming bands of civilians moved toward White's guardhouse, surrounding him. After a few more minutes, the crowd grew to over 50 people. Someone rang the bells in a nearby church, taken as an alarm bell, which drew even more people. Private White backed up to the top of the stairs in front of the customs house so that he was elevated and no one could get behind him. He fixed his bayonet on his musket and loaded it. Now, there were several customs officials still in the customs house. 
White banged on the door with the butt of his gun to be let in. No one dared open the locked door for him, though. He remained alone on the stairs, facing the mob in the dark. A local bookseller named Henry Knox, who will go on to bigger things in the Revolution, warned White not to fire on the crowd or they would kill him. White responded angrily, If they molest me, I will kill them. The crowd began pelting White with snow and ice. Finally, White yelled to call out the guard. The main guard was only about a block away from White and the customs house. At the same time all this was going on, several fights between soldiers and civilians had broken out around town. The officers were making every effort to get the soldiers into barracks to prevent a fight. The soldiers were in no mood to retreat and wanted a confrontation, so getting them into barracks while mobs of men and boys harassed them remained difficult. At the main guard, Captain Thomas Preston served as officer of the day. Civilians reported to him about White's situation and the danger that the mob might carry him off. Preston delayed doing anything for about a half an hour, perhaps hoping the mob would eventually disperse on its own. Taking more soldiers into the mob might only make things worse. Eventually, he assembled a corporal and six privates to relieve Private White. The squad's lieutenant, a 20-year-old boy, could have led them, but Captain Preston decided to lead the squad himself. Preston marched the soldiers with fixed bayonets and unloaded muskets through the crowd to the customs house. He ordered Private White to fall in with the squad and attempted to march back everyone to the main guard. However, the mob, now numbering in the hundreds by some accounts, pressed around the squad and prevented them from leaving. The soldiers formed a defensive semicircle with Captain Preston in front of them. The mob continued to yell and throw snowballs, ice, and rocks, daring the soldiers to fire. Perhaps hoping to intimidate the mob, Preston ordered his men to load their muskets. But this only seemed to enrage the crowd. Preston and his men left the main guard only about 15 minutes earlier. But at this point, someone threw a club that hit a private Montgomery in the head, knocking him to the ground. Angrily, he stood up and fired his weapon. Seconds later, a member of the mob struck Captain Preston with a club. The attacker slipped on the ice at the last second, causing the attempted blow to the head to glance off Preston's arm. But after this first shot, there were several seconds, and some witnesses say a minute or two, as some in the crowd attempted to run while others pressed forward. The other soldiers also fired their weapons into the crowd. Preston, having recovered from his fall, angrily asked why they had fired. They said they thought they had heard him order them to fire. By this time, the entire 29th Regiment was in formation under arms. They turned out in a defensive formation. A few hundred soldiers would not fare well against an angry and armed mob, possibly of thousands. Fortunately, the mob opted not to wage a full-scale attack against the regiment and retreated. The situation remained tense, though, until Governor Hutchinson arrived on the scene. He promised that the soldiers responsible would be tried for murder. The soldiers returned to their barracks and the crowd dispersed. Groups of armed civilians, however, continued to patrol the streets. Now, as a result of that initial fire, three men died instantly. Crispus Attucks, a sailor of African and Native American descent, was in his late 40s and had been at the front of the mob taunting the soldiers. He had been an active son of liberty, 
and was killed instantly. Samuel Gray, age 52, a rope maker who had been involved in fights with soldiers over the previous few days, also died. James Caldwell, just age 17, had served as a sailor. He had no family in Boston, so little is known of his background. Eight others suffered wounds. One of them, Samuel Maverick, died the following morning. A 17-year-old carpenter's apprentice, Maverick had also been at the front of the mob, daring the soldiers to fire. The final fatality, Patrick Carr, died nine days later. Carr was a 30-year-old Irish immigrant. He had lived long enough to testify about the incident that night. Because he said the soldiers had shown great restraint and that he forgave them, the radicals tried to discount his testimony as that of a papist who could not really appreciate liberty. Well, next week we'll discuss the fallout from the massacre, as well as the long-awaited repeal of most of the towns and duties. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.